0: All right, we're glad you all are back tonight. Uh, we're here for the first time tonight, if you weren't here last week. We're going to continue our study in baptism, and we're going to work really hard to be out of here by uh, 7 o'clock. I know there's a football game on that some of y'all want to go see, so we're going to do our best to get out of here by then. But if you remember last week, or if you weren't here last week, just kind of a, a recap, a sub- summary We talked about how with the whole issue of baptism, the whole question of baptism, there's all kinds of questions, right, about um, who should be baptized, and we talked about adults or kids or um, in in different combinations. We talked about um, how baptism should be done, pouring, sprinkling, immersion. Um, When should baptism be done? As soon as someone believes, the next available Sunday morning service, after that person's been taught for a while, or even after that person turns 18 or 21, uh, and so there's there's all these questions, and we're going to talk about those specific questions next week: the who of baptism, the when, uh, and the and the how of baptism. But last week and tonight, we want to talk about the why of baptism. What is baptism? Why do we baptize people? What what does it do? What is the point? What is the purpose? Um, and so, last week I said we could take all the different types of Christian churches and put them in two different. Uh, divide them up into like two different categories about baptism, or two different buckets, if you want to think about it that way. And in one bucket, we would have all the different types of Christian churches that believe that uh, believes in, in in what we would call baptismal regeneration, right? Which means that baptism saves you. Baptism is how you're saved. Baptism is how you're born again. That that word regeneration means to be born again, right? And so, baptism is how you're born again. And then you take the other bucket, and this is all the Christian churches that believe that baptism is important and baptism does something, but it doesn't cause you to be born again, right? Baptism doesn't wash your sins away, and baptism is not how you're born again. It does something different. And so last week, we, we talked about three different traditions that fit in the baptismal regeneration bucket. We talked about the Catholic Church, we talked about Lutheran churches, and we talked about churches of Christ, okay? And so if you weren't here last week, you could go back. Uh, I think that's online. You can go back and watch that online and, and, and learn about those three. Tonight we want to look at the other bucket, people, uh, churches, traditions, uh, believers who don't think baptism actually saves you. It does something different, okay? And there's lots of different groups we could talk about, but we're going to talk about three groups tonight that kind of represent that, that bucket, the, the Methodist Church, uh, the Presbyterian uh, Church, and the Baptist Church, Okay? And so we're going to start out with the Methodist view, and, and to be honest with you, just right up front, to be completely honest with you, uh, the, the Methodist view seems to be somewhat, somewhat confusing or kind of unclear to me. Um, and I'll just say that up front, just so you know that. It, and that may be because I don't have as much experience with uh, with the Methodist Church. Some of you all have more experience with the Methodist Church than, than I do. Uh, we have a Methodist Church right or, right around the corner that's been here uh, a little bit longer than than we have, uh, been in Fairdale a little bit longer than, than First Baptist Church has. Uh, and we've done some things with them over the years, and I know there's there's family members and things that are that are uh, kind of interrelated between our church and that church. And so some of you may have more experience with with the Methodist church than I do and and that may be part of part of uh, why I find it a little bit confusing. Um, but another reason I think is is because their statement of faith seems to be a little bit confusing. We're going to read a couple couple different um, sections of that here in a, here in a minute where I can show you show you what I mean by that.. Um, and, and then another reason it could be because several years ago, about twenty years or so, uh, the Methodist Church changed some of some of what they believe about baptism, or at least some of how they talk about baptism. And so as I've as I've been studying this, maybe it's confusing to me because I'm mixing how they used to talk about it with how they're talking about it now, and maybe I'm maybe I'm getting confused about that. Okay, but but here's here, here's what I want to want to do. In, in one of their statements, or in one of one of the places in their statements, they they say this: baptism is a sacrament. Okay, In a sacrament, God uses common elements, in this case water, as a means or vehicle of divine grace. Baptism is administered by the church as the body of Christ. It is the act of God through the grace of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, So they say baptism is a sacrament. We talked about that word last week. Uh, We don't use that word here. We say that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances because they're things that, that... uh, Jesus has ordained for His church to do in commemoration of Him, uh, and so we call baptism and the Lord's Supper ordinances. Other traditions call them sacraments. Okay, and sacrament uh, comes from a Latin word that means oath or promise, and 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 so normally when you when you use the word sacrament, you're talking about uh, in, in some way that grace is communicated through the act. Somehow we receive God's grace through baptism, or we receive God's grace through the Lord's Supper and we talked about that last week with the Catholic Church and, and the Lutheran Church and, and, and the Church of Christ but the, but the Methodist Church uses that word as well now, now I don't think they mean that baptism saves you the way the Catholic Church does or the Lutheran Church does and, and we're going to look at that in, in a few minutes but they but they say that it's a sacrament and so it's a it's, it's a ritual that in some way imparts God's grace to us. We receive God's grace somehow through baptism even if it is, isn't fully the way that the way that we're saved okay? Um, they also say, this This statement also says that while a pastor or someone else in the church administers the baptism uh, takes the person and pours the water over their head or sprinkles the water on their head, or sometimes Baptist churches, uh, baptized by immersion, they let the person being baptized decide how they want to be baptized. And so uh, the pastor would either take them under the water or pour the water over their head or whatever. And so the, the pastor or, or another church leader would be doing that. However, when the pastor or other church leader is doing that, God is really the one that's acting. God is really the one that's acting. God is really one, the one doing the work, right? So whenever a pastor or, or another church leader baptizes the person, sprinkles them or pours water over them or immerses them, you know, that, that's what's happening. The person is doing that. But in, in that, in the person doing that, God is doing something. God is, is, is acting um, as well. Um, uh, Another place they say that they believe that baptism is the way that someone is, quote, initiated into Christ's holy church, incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation, and given new birth through water and the Spirit. All this is God's gift offered to us without price. Okay? And so when I read that, and maybe this is why I'm a little bit confused, when I read that, to me, that sounds like baptismal regeneration. That sounds like baptism is how you're saved, right? They say, uh, given new birth through water and the Spirit, and that sounds like that's how you're born again, right? That's what new birth means to be born again, and 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 so they they so that's 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 one one way they talk about baptism. But on the other hand, they, they talk about baptism a different way, right? And, and these quotes I'm getting off of the United Methodist Church website. And so there's, there's a place where they talk about baptism, have like a statement about baptism, and then there's a section of the website where they have like frequently asked questions and they'll have a question and, and, and then an answer. And so on that part of the website, the question is, do I have to be baptized in order for God to save me? And the answer that's written there, the Methodist Church responds, no. God is free to offer God's salvation if for some reason you have not been baptized by the time you die. So clearly they also teach that that you can be saved without being baptized, right? So in one statement, they they seem to say that baptism is how you're saved, baptism is how you're born again, but they they don't mean that or they they don't believe that. I'm, I'm misunderstanding that somehow because they also answer the question, no, you do not have to be baptized. God can save people without them being baptized. And so I think um, a couple things to try to try to put these things together, the, at least the way I'm understanding them right now. I think the Methodist Church would say that the normal way, the, the kind of the normal way that God deals with people and, and especially through the church, people that are connected to the church, the normal way that God deals with people is he uses baptism in the process of salvation. Baptism is part of the uh, pathway, part of the uh, process that, that that someone goes through. When they're baptized, normally someone who is saved will also be baptized, but God is free to work other ways, and God is free to save someone even if they haven't been baptized or for some reason, if they can't be baptized, right? And so, so I, I would think about situations like maybe someone who is um, elderly and sick, and they're in the ho- in a hospital, and they've um, and and they have some kind of uh, terminal illness, and and they have like a deathbed conversion kind of kind of situation where they believe the gospel. Um, they they repent of their sins. They believe the gospel, and and yet they're not able to be baptized before they die, and and so I think the Methodist Church would say that that person is 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 saved. Doesn't have to be baptized to be saved. Um, I can, I can think of another situation. Say there's someone who's living in a in a foreign country somewhere where there are no churches around where this person is, and this person gets a Bible and begins reading the Bible and comes to faith through just reading the Bible. There's no he doesn't have any connection with any other believer, any other Christian, but he's reading the Bible and he begins to believe the gospel that's in the Bible, and uh, and and the Lord saves him. And, and he doesn't get baptized because there's no church around. Um, there's no, maybe, maybe it's even in a part of the world where maybe he's living in a desert. Maybe he's like a Bedouin person living in a, in a desert and there's not much water around so he doesn't have an opportunity to be baptized. Um, I, I think in those situations, the Methodist Church would say that someone can be baptized without being saved. So, so it's a little bit confusing to me, but, but these things I, I think are, are, are for sure that I understand. One, uh, in baptism, God is the one doing something. God is the one acting. God does something to the person being baptized. The normal process of salvation includes baptism. Someone who, a a normal person, uh, the normal way that God works, I should say, not necessarily a normal person, but the normal way that God works would be that that the person who's saved would be baptized. However, baptism is not required for God to save you. He can save you apart from salvation. And and I think kind of of in summary, and and we can have some questions and discussion about this at the end, but this is how I've kind of put this together. Methodists seem to, seem to emphasize the Bible's teaching that salvation is a process, not just an instantaneous experience. So sometimes in the Bible, and, and that's absolutely true, and sometimes in the Bible, God, uh, God talks about or the Bible talks about uh, that you have been saved. right? And that sounds like it's a momentary thing that happened in the past, and it's done, and you have been saved, and, and you have it. right? But there's other times in the Bible where, where the Bible talks about you are being saved. And other parts of the Bible where it talks about you will be saved, right? And so is, is salvation a momentary thing? Is salvation a process? Is salvation something that happens in the future? And I think the Bible teaches that, that all three of those things are, are the case, right? I don't know if you remember um, high school geometry uh, from when you were in high school. But in high school geometry, one of the kind of early lessons, one of the fundamental things that, that, you, that you learn about are like line segments and lines and rays. Right? And a line segment is a is a short line that has a dot on each end, a beginning and an end, right? A beginning point, an end point, and then a line in the middle. That's that's a line segment. A line is is a line that goes on forever in both directions. It doesn't have endpoints at all, it just goes on forever in both directions. ray is a line that has a beginning point and then goes on forever in one direction. Okay? And, and that's how I think about salvation, how the Bible pictures salvation. Salvation does have an, a very definite beginning point. It, it is instantaneous, it is it is uh, momentary, right? There's a moment where you begin believing there's a moment in time where, before that moment, you weren't believing, and after that moment, you were believing. Right? There's a moment where, there's a moment in time where, before that moment, you weren't repenting of your sins, and after that moment, you were repenting of your sins. There's a moment where, before that moment, you weren't justified and and forgiven of your sins and saved, and then after that point in time, you were forgiven of your sins and saved. Right? You understand what I'm saying? There's a there's a moment where salvation begins, but then salvation is a process that continues on until. Um, until, we're, until we die, until we're resurrected, until we're glorified and, and with Jesus in heaven. And so Baptist churches traditionally have put more, more emphasis on the, on the beginning of salvation, kind of the momentary part of salvation, we'll talk about that later when we get to Baptist, but walking down the aisle and making a profession of faith and that's, that's when you're saved. Um, and and I, I think, if I'm understanding this right, the Methodist church puts more emphasis on that process side of salvation right? That salvation is a, is a process that continues. And so baptism is how God normally starts that process, um, but not always and not necessarily. You can be saved without being baptized, but normally bap- baptism is how God starts that process in the believer. But then people have to continue believing and continue repenting and continue, uh, continue uh, in, in God's grace, working through their life for the rest of their lives. For salvation to 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 be true to take hold, right? And so so baptism has that momentary thing that that's that's kind of the initiatory right, and and then baptism goes on from there, right? But baptism is, is is not how you're saved. There's a sense where baptism is how you're saved, and there's a sense where baptism is not how you're saved. You can be saved without baptism. Baptism is that normal in, initiatory right, but you can be saved without it, right? And we'll, we'll talk about some scriptures here. In, in a few minutes, okay? But that, that's my current understanding right now of, of the Methodist view, but I admit up front that I'm a little bit confused about it, and so um, but, so if you have questions and want we'll to talk about that more, we can. The the next view is the Presbyterian view, okay? And I feel like I understand this view pretty well because I grew up in a Presbyterian church. Uh, my family, my mom and dad are still part of a Presbyterian church. My dad's an elder there, and when I go back to Tennessee for Christmas or whatever uh, to visit them, I go to their church. I preach in their church a lot, and and, and, and would love to in the future and, and, and attend there when I'm not preaching, when I'm in town. Um, so I feel like I understand this, this position pretty well. So the, uh, for the Presbyterian view, baptism is not really connected to salvation at all. Uh, baptism is not really connected to salvation at all. Baptism is a sign and seal of God's grace. Okay? And normally we think about grace as being God's salvation, right? So what do you mean it's a sign and seal of God's grace if it's not really connected to, uh, to salvation? What baptism does is it puts a person into the covenant community of God, okay? It puts a person into the covenant community of God. And normally we would think, okay, well, if you're in God's covenant community, if you're part of God's people, right? We would think of that as being somebody that's a believer. Only believers are God's people. Only believers will be in God's community. But, but the Presbyterian church doesn't necessarily think that way, okay? They say that baptism marks people off as members of the covenant community, and they say that baptism in the New Testament replaces circumcision in the Old Testament, okay? Where people were were circumcised in the Old Testament, that was the mark that they were part of God's people. Uh, That that in the New Testament, that is taken the place or, or replaced by baptism. Okay, and in the Old Testament, if you if you look at the nation of Israel, look at the Hebrew people, God's people, there were people that were that were circumcised, that were that were full on believers and committed to God and following following God, but there were others who who weren't necessarily. Okay, but they were still part of the part of the community, and so they say that baptism replaces circumcision, uh, and, and we'll see what all that means. But look with me to Colossians chapter two. In Colossians chapter two. Verse 11, Paul writes this in verses 11 and 12. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. He says, you were also circumcised in him, in Christ. You were also circumcised in him. And remember, Colossians, he's writing to a Christian church. He's writing to a, to a church of believers, just like First Baptist Church Fairdale, right? And so he's talking to these people. He said, you all, the members of this church, you were also circumcised in him, with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh, in the circumcision of the Messiah, or of the Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, okay? Now, when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. So here in this passage, Paul very closely connects circumcision with baptism. And he says, how is it that you were circumcised into Christ? Well, he says you were circumcised into Christ when you were buried with him in baptism. And so Paul seems to be making a connection here where circumcision and baptism are doing the same thing. And baptism in the New Testament is replacing circumcision in the Old Testament, right? Right. And, and there's some benefits to that, uh, some reasons for that. For one reason, in the Old Testament, circumcision was only for Jewish people or people that were coming into the, that, that were converting and kind of becoming Jewish. Um, and it was only for Jewish men. Where baptism now is for all people, doesn't, doesn't matter what nationality you are, what race you are, what ethnic uh, group you're part of, baptism is for everyone, and baptism is for men and women both, male and female both. It's not, there's not a sex distinction there. And so in the New Testament, those barriers are removed, and so circumcision is replaced with with baptism, okay? And so baptism uh, replaces circumcision. Uh, In the Old Testament, like I said, circumcision marks someone off as a member of the covenant community of God. Um, In the Old Testament, circumcision was required of all members of the community and their children Remember, children were were circumcised on the eighth day. Paul brags about that in the New Testament, that he was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, right? Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. They presented him to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so because because circumcision was for believers and their children, in a similar way, baptism is now for believers and their children. And, and, And it's because... Baptism is not connected with salvation, right? If a child is baptized in a Presbyterian church, that doesn't in any way mean that that child is a believer. Doesn't in any way mean that that child is saved. That child might grow up and be saved. That child might grow up and not be saved. Baptism doesn't do that. Baptism is a marker that this person is a member of the covenant community of God. Okay? So look look, look or listen to Acts chapter 2. We read this passage last week. Acts chapter two, this is when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he gets to the end of his sermon, and we look to verse uh, verse 37, chapter two, verse 37. When when the people that Peter was preaching to, when they heard this, they they came under deep conviction, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles that were there, brothers, what must we do? And Peter answers in verse 38, repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39 says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Okay? And so they, they look at that and they say circumcision was for for members of the, of the community and their children. In the New Testament, Peter says, this is for you and your children, just like it was in the Old Testament. There's a, there's a connection, there's a continuity between uh, how people were part of God's people in the Old Testament and how people were part of God's people in the New Testament. And so, uh, and, and, and so children are, are involved, the, the believers and their children. Another passage that's a little bit confusing, but we're going to read it anyway, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay, Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is about marriage and divorce, and so we're not going to get into all of what it's about, but I just want to read see, see what Paul says, this one phrase that he says here. In verse 14, he's talking about a, a believer who's married to an unbeliever. So either a believing husband who's married to an unbelieving wife or a believing wife who's married to an unbelieving husband. Okay, And he says in verse 14, uh, for the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt. But now, they are set apart for God. Okay? So there's, there, there's something here, and it's really really kind of too confusing for us to spend a lot of time talking about it, but there's something here where because the wife is a believer or because the husband is a believer and they're set apart for God, now their children are set apart for God. Okay, and so if I'm married to an unbelieving wife, because I'm set apart for God, my relationship with God has, somehow affects her, and it affects our children. Okay, and and so the Presbyterian Church would say that uh, baptism is for believers and for their children. Anyone who's a member of the covenant community of God, for for believers and for their children. So if someone if someone is an adult and they get saved, then they would be baptized because they're joining the community of faith. Uh, joining the community of God by becoming a believer, right? By choosing to join that, by, by turning from their sins and, and, and becoming a part of the community. But now their children would also be a part of the community because they were included in the Old Testament under circumcision. Now they'll be included in the New Testament under, under, um, under baptism. Okay. So the question that, that, that came up for me that, that you might be thinking, I'm not sure if you are, but the question that came up for me is, so what's the point? Why is it beneficial for a kid, for an infant, for a child to be part of the covenant community? What what benefit do you get? If if it has nothing to do with salvation, really, then what what benefit do you get from being part of the covenant community if you're not a believer? And the answer is that you get access, okay? You get access to the gospel. You get access to, uh, you're incorporated into the community of Christ, into into the community of believing people. And, and in some ways, you even experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit because you experience those, the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the of the saved people around you, that you're part of that community. Okay, so whenever. Whenever a baptism is performed in a, in a Presbyterian church, uh, there's certain things that, that they that they do. And if it's an infant, the parents will come up with the infant, and if they're sponsors, uh, Catholic Church calls them godparents, they would call them sponsors or supporters, then, then they would come up with them, and and the pastor's there, the infant's there, the parents are there, any supporters are there, and they ask certain questions and give certain answers, Right, almost like a marriage ceremony or like an ordination service that we would do here. And so the pastor would say, Relying on God's grace, do you promise to live the Christian faith and to teach that faith to your child? And the parents would say, I do. And then he would look to the, to the sponsors, if they're if they're there, and he would say, do you promise through prayer and example to support and encourage this child and to be a faithful Christian? And they would say, I do. Then he would look to the congregation, the whole church. He would say, do you as members of the Church of Jesus Christ promise to guide and nurture the mom and dad, by word and deed, by love and prayer, encouraging them to—I'm sorry, by the, by the child, the child's name—do you as members of the Church of Jesus Christ promise to guide and nurture the child by word and deed, with love and prayer, encouraging them to know and follow Christ and to be faithful members of his church? And the, and the congregation would respond, we do. And so in, in the baptism ceremony, there are these promises being made that the infant's not making any promises— but the parents are making certain promises that we're going to raise them a certain way, that we're going uh, to uh, lead them a certain way. If their sponsor's there, they're making promises that we're going to do these things. And, and then the church makes certain promises that we're going to take responsibility for this kid. And, and that's, that's what it means to be part of the covenant community, is that now you're one of us, and so we're collectively going to take responsibility for you. And we're gonna, we're, and so it, it's similar to a, uh, like a baby dedication or something that, like you might have in a Baptist church. Um, where we're promising to raise this kid and love this kid and, and live like Christians uh, around this kid, but in the Presbyterian Church, it's something—it's something more than that. Something deeper than that. That you're—you're you're a part of this community, and so you're going to get the benefits of being a part of this community, right? You're going to hear the gospel. You're going, to see the, you're going to see the gospel in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. You're going to hear the gospel preached. You're going to see people forgiving each other and loving each other. And you're going to be taught in, in Sunday school classes and in, 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 by example in these other ways what it means to be a follower of the Lord. And we're hoping and trusting and praying that as you get older and all these things will work together uh, to, that, that you'll be saved, that you'll respond to these different graces that God's put in your life. And, and, and you'll respond and repent of your sin and, and turn to Him in faith. Okay. So for the Presbyterian Church, it's not it's not directly connected to salvation. It's more uh, it's more an initiatory rite that that puts someone that marks someone off as a member of this covenant community that God's working through in in the world, the church. Okay. For Baptists, the Baptist view is is different than than both of those. Uh, for one, Baptists don't we don't uh, baptize infants, right? We believe in believers' baptism, um, and so uh, for Baptists, baptism is an outward testimony of faith in Jesus, right? So the pres- I said the Presbyterian Church baptism really doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It's not really connected to salvation. It puts someone in the community uh, in, in the community of faith, the community of God. We could say in a different way that for Baptists, baptism really doesn't have anything to do with salvation, right? In the sense that baptism is causing you to be saved or, or, or if you don't get baptized, you're not saved. Baptism in the Baptist church, baptism is something that you do after you're saved, right? And so we believe that baptism is an outward testimony of faith in Jesus. It's a, it's a public profession of faith or the profession, the public profession of faith okay? And so we, we don't say baptism is a sacrament because there's no grace that's being transferred from God to, to, the, to the person during baptism. We say that baptism is, is an ordinance. It's something God's ordained his church to do. It's not a means of grace. It, it's a public pronouncement, um, and, and salvation must come first, okay? So let's look at a, at a couple of um, passages. Let's go back to that Acts chapter 2 passage. Because this is a really hard one, because they ask Peter outright, "What must we do to be saved?" And Peter tells them, "If you want to be saved, you better be baptized." Right? That's a, that's a really difficult passage. Like we talked about last week, the churches of Christ point to that passage um, a lot. It can't get much clearer than that. So he says in chapter two, he's preaching. He finishes preaching. They hear what he said. They came uh, under deep conviction, it says. And they came to Peter, the rest of the apostles, and they said, what must we do if we want to be saved? How should we respond to what you said? We believe that what you said is true. Now what should we do? Okay. What will we expect Peter to say? Any ideas? What, if someone came and asked you, what must I do to be saved, what would you say? Yeah. Okay? Repent and believe, right? We, we would say repent and, and believe. So why does Peter say repent and be baptized? He doesn't say believe at all. Does Peter think you don't have to believe to be saved? You can just, you can just turn from your sins on, on, on your own power and, 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 and be baptized and, and God saves you? You don't have to believe? He doesn't include belief. He says repent and be baptized. So why, is it, why might it be that he says repent and be baptized instead of repent and believe? Okay? okay that was more of a sorry that was more of a rhetorical question <laughs> sorry sorry about that i got y'all all I got y'all all charged up to answer questions when i when I asked that first one here's what I think I think the reason paul uh, the reason Peter says repent and be baptized I think what he means I, I think he means the same thing as repent and believe. I think baptism is how you show publicly that you have believed right I think baptism is the public profession of Faith. I think baptism is how we show publicly that we have believed. There'll be time for questions in a minute. Okay. I think I think baptism is how we show publicly that we have believed. And so let's look at one other passage. Uh, this First Peter chapter three twenty one. And then I'm going to make one other point, and then we're going to have time for questions and discussion. Okay. Uh, what I say? First Peter three. First Peter three, chapter twenty one. 1 Peter 3. I feel like if I keep saying it, it distracts from the fact that I haven't found it yet. But I got it now. 1 Peter 3, 21, okay? says this. He, we read this passage last week too. This is He's talking about Noah and the flood. He's talking about how baptism corresponds to Noah and the flood. And he says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Clear as can be, right? Salvation or baptism saves you. You can't be saved without Baptism. Baptism is how you're saved, right? But but keep going, look what he says after that. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of filth or dirt of the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So whenever we baptize someone up in, in the baptistry here, whenever we get someone there and we baptize them, what does baptism do? What is baptism doing? It's not cleansing them. That's what Peter said, right? Baptism saves you, but it doesn't save you by cleansing you, by washing your sins away. That's not what it does, right? It doesn't remove, it doesn't cleanse you like washing filth off the body. No, what it does is, it's the pledge of a good conscience. Your baptism is a pledge of a good conscience. It's, the baptism is like a, is a proclamation. It's how you're proclaiming to the church and to the world that you're believing in the Lord Jesus. Okay. Traditionally, in Baptist churches, um, we've had three ordinances or maybe two ordinances in a sacrament, right? We wouldn't call it that, but we have. We have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. And then traditionally we've also had a third ordinance or sacrament that we don't really call it, talk about it that way, but walking down the aisle, right? For Baptist churches, at least over the past 50 years or so, if you wanna show the world that you're believing, if you wanna show the church that you've trusted in Jesus and he saved you, how do you show the church that? By walking down the aisle, right? During the invitation, walk down the aisle. But walking down the aisle is not in the Bible. I'm not saying you shouldn't walk down the hill, I'm not saying that's bad at all, but I'm saying that's not in the Bible, right? But, but God does give us a way in the Bible to publicly proclaim that we've believed, and to publicly proclaim that we're, that, that we're joining, we're becoming, that we are a part of the people of God, his believers, his followers. And, and the way the Bible gives us to do that is through baptism. And so this is why when we baptize people, uh, you know, we ask the question, what is your profession of faith? And the person is, is taught to say something like, I believe that Jesus is Lord. And then upon that profession of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. right? Because baptism is not saving you. Baptism is not washing your, your sins away. Baptism is not, is not washing your, your filth and, and dirt away. Uh, baptism is you proclaiming that you believe in the Lord Jesus and reaching out to God for a good conscience. right? That I'm, I'm, I'm trusting, I'm believing, my conscience is clear, I've been forgiven of my sins. I'm one of God's people. I'm one of your people, right? Okay, so uh, next week we're going to look at who should be baptized and when should they be baptized, and uh, we'll talk about can someone be baptized or should someone be baptized more than once, um, and, and then how, how are they baptized, sprinkling, pouring, uh, immersion. Uh, but we have a few minutes left, 10 or 15 minutes left, so I want to answer questions if we can. Ms. Jetty had her hand up. So, Ms. Jetty, you got a question? Oh, a comment, okay. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So Ms. Jetty says that uh, if you're going to get to a point to where you repent, that belief is included in that. And we've talked about that before, that repentance and faith are kind of two sides of the same coin. So Ms. Jetty is solidly in the camp that you had to be baptized to be saved, right? Because you repent and you're, and, you're, and you're baptized. And Jesus was also baptized. Was also baptized. Was also baptized. Yeah, absolutely. We, yeah, absolutely. We, the question is not, should we be baptized or should we not be baptized? Absolutely, we should be baptized. The, the question, the discussion we're having is, what does baptism do? Yeah, Chris? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Chris is highlighting that there's two different ways uh, that baptism is used in the Bible, or two different two different concepts that talked about using baptism. Uh, that you're baptized into the into the Spirit, right? And and or baptized physically, baptized in, in water. And what we're talking about tonight and this, this whole month is baptism in water, right? We could talk about spiritual baptism, maybe we'll do that next February, in our, in our next focus on February, but that's kind of too big of an issue to talk about both of those things in, at the same time or in the same night, um, because there's, there's different views on what does it mean to be baptized by the, by the Holy Spirit. Um, just, just very briefly, what, what I believe and I, I think what our church believes is that being baptized in the Holy Spirit happens when you believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit at that point. It's not we don't think it's something that happens later. There are churches that there are church traditions that think that you're saved at one point, and then later you receive the Holy Spirit, or you're baptized in the Holy Spirit later. Um, but but we don't think that. We think that baptism in the Holy Spirit comes the moment that you believe and are and are saved. And then we baptize in water after that. Yep. Other questions or, or comments? Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 no, so, so the question was, for the, for the recording, the question was in the Presbyterian church view, um, if you're an adult that's getting baptized, you have to be a believer first, but if you're a child getting baptized, you don't have to be a believer first, kind of why not, I guess is the question, and then once the child becomes a believer, do they have to be rebaptized? And the answer uh, to those questions are the the adult that that's going to be baptized does have to be a believer. A child who's going to be baptized, if they're the if they're the like infant child of a believer, then they don't have to be a believer. Um, and once they do become a believer, they don't have to be rebaptized. And and the reasoning behind that is it, it all goes back to circumcision because that's how circumcision was. If an adult was circumcised. It had to be someone who was consciously making a decision to become part of the people of God, part of the community of God. Right. So, uh, so the uh, Abraham was bat- was circumcised as an adult uh, because he was becoming part of God's people. Um, if 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 they had uh, a foreigner that that came in uh, to live among them, a sojourner to, that came in to live among them, then that person would have to be would have to be circumcised to become part of their community. And that would be a obviously a, a, a conscious decision they're making as an adult. However. Someone who was born, the child who was born of, a, of an Israelite, of a Hebrew, was automatically part of the people of God. And so that, that child was, was circumcised on the eighth day to symbolize that they're part of, part of that community. Now, when they grew up and they decided to, to follow the Lord and to trust in the Lord, um, and, and they started to understand what, what was being taught and they agreed with it, they didn't have to be circumcised again because they were already circumcised, right? They already, it already showed that they were part of the community of God. And so Presbyterians uh, model baptism off of circumcision, and the same things apply. If you're, the, if you're the child of a believer, then you're already part of the community of God. You may or may not be a believer yourself, and you may or may not become a believer, but you're already a, a part of the community of faith because you're a child of a believing parent. And then later in life, if you become a believer yourself, well, you're already part of the community, so you don't have to be baptized to become a part of the community. You're already, you're already part of the community. You're a part of the community by birth. Other comments, questions? Yes, sir. Senor. Uh, what is the relationship between baptism and the Lord's Supper? Can, can a personal participate in the Lord's Supper without being baptized? Or a person has to be baptized only to participate in the Lord's Supper? Yeah, good question. So the question was what is the relationship between baptism and the Lord's Supper? Can someone who is not baptized uh, take the Lord's Supper, uh, or should someone who's not baptized not take the Lord's Supper? Um, that's a big question too, and 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 different different churches, different denominations, different uh, groups have different answers to that question. Um, in In our church, in the Baptist church, and, and in our Baptist church, we take the position that uh, the Lord's Supper is for believers. The Lord's Supper is for believers, um, and and the Lord's Supper is for uh, is is for believers, and so we believe that believers. Have to be baptized, right? Believers should be baptized, and so if there's a believer who's believing, and but hasn't been baptized, well, there's 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 an issue. There's something going on. Why have you not been baptized yet, right? Um, and, and there's 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 some type of, of of issue there that needs to be resolved before before uh, before you take the Lord's supper, because the Lord's supper is for believers, but we're also warned in the Bible to not take the Lord's supper wrongly, right? And we're warned that if there's some kind of sin in our life, if there's something going on, some kind of disobedience to God, then we shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. We should stop, and we should go and get that worked out and ask forgiveness for whoever we've wronged uh, before before we come back and take the Lord's Supper. And so we would say, for a believer who's not been baptized, we would say, you know, let's talk about this. Let's talk about why you're not baptized. Let's get you baptized, and then you can take the Lord's Supper the next time uh, because you've made that public profession, right? We say baptism is the public profession. Um, you've made that now, and, and so you're part of God's people. You've publicly professed that you're a believer, and so now let's let's take the Lord's Supper. Um, the other thing uh, about our church, specifically, and we'll talk about this more next week when we talk about how we baptize. We believe that the word baptism means immersion, and so we believe that the only the only biblical way, the only right way to be baptized, is to be immersed. And so we would say for someone who is a is a believer, someone who's who's been baptized in one of these other traditions, but not by immersion then we would, we would ask that person not to take the Lord's Supper with us as well, because we don't think they've been baptized yet, right? Now, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna be the police and go around and make sure people aren't taking the Lord's Supper and jerk it out of their hands if they take it, right? We're gonna leave that up to, up to each individual person because that's what the Bible tells us, that we each one should examine ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper. So we're gonna give these guidelines and, and tell people what we think. And then, um, but yeah, we would ask people that, that have not been baptized yet because they haven't made that public profession of faith yet, um, and there's something going on, why they have you not been baptized? Um, we would ask them to do that before they take the Lord's Supper. Um, and then we would also ask them to be baptized by immersion before they take the Lord's Supper. And that can be, be kind of hard sometimes. We, were, you know, we had an elders meeting t- today, uh, this afternoon, and we weren't talking about baptism, we were talking about some other things. And, and, and sometimes the Bible says stuff, and, and if we go with what the Bible says, it, it can be really hard, it can be really, really um, awkward. To tell people certain things, if we say we think we think this is what the Bible says, uh, and sometimes for individual people, whatever situation they're in, that's that's a really kind of kind of difficult, sticky situation, and sometimes it's hard to it's hard to say that. But if we think that's what the Bible says, then that's the position that we take. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the question, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the question is, why do we say that people can't take the Lord's Supper unless they've been baptized when they're already believers, right? It seems like we would let any believer take the Lord's Supper. So, why is it that someone has to be baptized first before they can take the Lord's Supper here? Um, and and one of the other elders may want to speak to this also. But my, my answer to that question would be that. That baptism is that public profession of faith, and so someone may be a believer. Someone is a believer whenever they repent and, and believe and trust in the Lord, and, and yet they haven't made that public profession yet. Um, and, and so we would ask them to do to, to do that before they take the Lord's supper, because the Lord's the Lord's supper is for uh, is for believers. And so we would ask you to to make that public, make that profession, um, confess Christ publicly before others before you would participate in the Lord's supper. Mad or Josh, anyone y'all want to add to that? Yeah. So for the recording, Pastor Matt said something along the lines of uh, Jesus calls us to be baptized. The Bible tells us to be baptized following his example. And so if if I'm a believer and I have not been baptized, then I'm being disobedient to that. To that. And so the New Testament tells us to be careful how we take the Lord's Supper, examine ourselves. If there's any sin, we need to, to repent of that, get rid of that, remove that before we take the Lord's Supper. And so we would ask a believer, you know, why have you not been baptized yet? And if it's, uh, if, if it's a matter, of, it would be a matter of being disobedient if you, ha- if you haven't had the opportunity, or if, you, if you've already had the opportunity and you haven't been baptized, then that would be a matter of disobedience. And so we would ask you to be baptized first, obey, obey the Lord in baptism before you take the Lord's Supper. Remove that disobedience from your life before you take the Lord's Supper. But again, we're gonna say that whenever we, when we're gonna have the Lord's Supper here this, this coming Sunday morning, and and Josh Green will be up front uh, leading that, and he'll say all those things. He'll say, you know, we believe this about the Lord's Supper. We ask you, if you're not a believer, not to take it. We don't know why you would, because of what it means and what it symbolizes. Um, we would also ask you to not take it if you haven't been baptized yet. We'd love to help you get baptized soon, and you can take it next time. All that kind of stuff. We would say all that and warn people of all that. Um, but then we're going to serve the Lord's supper, and we're not going to be patrolling the aisles and you know taking the bread or cup out of somebody's hand if we don't think they should take it. That's you know that's that's an individual decision. But this is what we believe, and this is what we say, and this is what we ask people to do. Yep. Yep. Josh. I, I think it's fair to say that right now, that like in our context, our minds kind of go to like the logistical like that does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trust in Christ today. We have to be certain to suffer before their baptism is mm-hmm. scheduled. Chris. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. He asked, what if what if you have a parent who is part of a different church, a whole different tradition, and your parent believes that baptism does wash away sins, how can you explain that to them without getting into an argument with them? Uh, that's that's a really hard question, Chris. Uh, and, and that But that's true for a lot of people. Uh, my mom and dad are part of a Presbyterian church, like I said, and so they believe it's sin if you don't baptize your infant children if you're a believer. Um, and so, you know, we've had some discussions about that. Um, I, I think one way, I think part of it, part of it uh, depends on your relationship with your parents to begin with, or whoever this person might be it may not be a parent. Whoever this person might be, uh, in your case, you said it was a parent. It depends on the relationship you have before that conversation starts, um, and how open you are with talking with each other about important stuff and things like that. Um, I think maybe you start at some common ground where if you have a parent who believes that and also believes the Bible's true, then you can sit down together and say, hey, well, let's read some Bible passages together. Let's look at what the Bible says. And you can have some back and forth that way because you're both agreeing the Bible's true to begin with. And so you can say, let's, let's compare what we believe to what the Bible says. Um, I think there's a place, uh, there's always a place when you're talking to someone who is, um, who is older, a parent especially, but, but anyone who's older, uh, I think there's there's a, a really important place to be uh, overly respectful and even even deferent in some ways. I think deference's the right word to kind of defer to them in some ways you don't want to be um, I think the Bible even, even talks about that you don't want to be um, overbearing to someone older. You don't want to be, you don't want to embarrass someone that, that's older than you, has, has authority over you. And so I think you want to be careful how you, how you say that. Um, one, of the, one of the best strategies might be, again, it depends on the situation, but instead of going at someone and saying, hey, you're wrong, let me show you what the Bible says, let me tell you what I think, uh, that kind of thing, uh, a better approach might be just to ask questions. Just to ask your parents questions to get them thinking about, you know, as they're having to answer the question that you're asking, it's getting them to think about what they really believe. And well, and you can ask, you know, well, what about when the Bible says this? And then they'll answer that question, and and that gets them thinking the things that you want them to think without you telling them the things that you want them to think. You know, instead of you making your arguments, you get them answering the question in their head as your arguments. Um, and and that's a way to maybe not be not be so controversial or so confrontational. I mean, yeah, but that's a that's a difficult. Dis- yeah, that's a difficult situation though to be in. Yep. All right, uh, we're a little bit after. Any final questions? Final comments? Last chance. If you have other questions, if you if if you have questions, by the way, and you're kind of embarrassed or shy and don't want to speak up in front of people, that's absolutely fine. You can email me or one of the other pastors your questions, or talk to us uh, individually, one on one, or even write a question down and, and get it to one of us. Um, the last week, so the week after next, we're going to have the whole hour of just questions and answers. And so if you don't want to ask your question out loud in front of people, you can get that to one of us and we'll read that question. We, don't, we won't say where it came from, who it came from, but we'll, we'll read that question out and, and try to answer it the best we can on that, on that fourth week. All right. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. If you uh, want to stay, we got the ball game on downstairs, uh, there's some snacks and stuff down there. You can get your own, order pizza, whatever you want to do, and uh, we're down there. Thanks. Y'all just dismissed.